Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Christmas 2023 Whitechapel Society meeting here in the Chamberlain Hotel in Aldgate in the heart of London's East End. Now, I well remember the first Jack the Ripper walk that I ever went on. I'm sure you all do as well. And the thing that struck me about the walk was how much time was spent on the walk about talking about the victims of Jack the Ripper and their lives and what Whitechapel was like for them. And I'm delighted that this afternoon we have two people who have written a book uh, on the subject, approaching it in the very same manner. Now, the other element that I'll be looking at is the press element as well. Because as we know, literacy levels were rising around this time and people were starting to demand and read newspapers. So the rise of the tabloid press took place around this time, and so we'll be talking about that. So let me introduce our speakers, uh, a mother and daughter combination, who will be addressing us this afternoon um, about their book, Myth, Monster and Murder. Now Jackie is a freelance writer and journalist, contributing articles for numerous magazines, both in print and online. She currently resides in Gibraltar, where she has contributed work for the national newspaper there, the, news, the Gibraltar Chronicle. She has an interest in women's issues and the struggle for equality, especially in terms of how women's histories are remembered and told. Her daughter, Kira, is a chartered forensic psychologist and has worked across the public and private sectors. She currently works in the prison service and sits on the education and training board for the British Psychological Society. Now she has a real link to the East End of London, having lived, studied and worked in this area and walking amongst Jack the Ripper tours, ghost tours and museums were part of her daily life. And I've just found out that if you were indeed a regular of the Market Tavern, you may well have been served by this young lady to my right. So, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give a big welcome to Jackie Anderson and Kira Wilde. Thank you very much, and thank you for the lovely welcome, everybody, and for the introduction. We do appreciate it. We're going to make a start. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I'm going to find it really hard to call Mum Jackie, so I'm going to just going to call her Mum, and you're all going to have to live with it. It's just weird otherwise. Anything you want to say as we make a start? It's been it's been just so lovely meeting all of you. Thank you for having us. So hopefully we can entertain you. Thank you. Right. If you crack on with those. Promise. There we go. That's it. Lovely. So, we'll start off. So why did we decide to write the book? What was our aim and how did this change? And how did we settle on the themes? So, as the introduction said, I lived and worked around here for a long time. I went to university um, just up in Old Castle Street. And when I started doing my Stage 2 and Forensic Psychology training, I was doing a lot of placements in the women's hostels and the homeless needs, the homeless hostels and complex needs hostels all around the area. And what I found for me was looking at how all the buildings were changing, looking at how all the cars were changing. One of the women's only hostels was in um, Old Montague Street. And it was that nothing had changed, that there were still women living alongside the richest in our society who had gone through the greatest traumas and the most poverty, and they were still there, and they were still vulnerable. And I couldn't understand why nothing that had happened over 150 years to make this change. So for me, it became a bit of an issue when I was kind of living daily with these women, seeing what it was like, and the men as well, because it was, there were men involved. And many of them were sex working, so nothing had changed there. It wasn't the only thing that they were doing, but sex working was a way to either feed a drug habit, help pay for their hostel um, rents, 
which did increase as I know there were lots of cuts coming as well when I was doing this. So for me, it became a real kind of issue. And Jack the Ripper had always been something that I was interested in anyway, because mum always had the books around the house and lying around. So how did things change as we conducted our research? Well, I think we went into it a bit like everybody does with like, oh, who done it? Can we figure it out? What can we, what can we do? And actually coming from that experience of being with these women, what changed for us was actually as we started looking more into society at the time, into the history of kind of prostitution and sex working, in thinking about the women that I was working with at the time, the story started to change. It became more about, well, actually, what made these women vulnerable rather than the who did it, okay? Because they're always going to be vulnerable. There's always going to be people out there who are going to do these sorts of things. So how do we help people with those vulnerabilities? And that was the more interesting story. I think the next take on it that became really interesting was actually the start of um, WT Stead and the investigative side of journalism and the real power of journalism to create that narrative and create that story and create that moral panic to the point where, to an extent, we still see this today. It holds a lot of interest, but also how we treat sex workers in today's society hasn't actually changed that much. It still generates a bit of a moral panic. So those areas started to change for us. So why did we settle on the themes? Because actually they became the ones that we really wanted to to make the message about. We wanted to make it about the women. We wanted to make it about society. We wanted to really point at how we weren't yet learning the lessons of the past and there were still really vulnerable people out there. And actually this could happen again. Should we go to the next slide? We sort of summarised it into four main areas of interest. I mean, there were so many and we could have gone to, down so many avenues when, when actually researching. And there is so much material. To, to work through when you're researching this period in history. So we decided to focus on these particular areas because they were of personal interest to us and, and as Kira has explained, they, they sort of led us down a particular path that we were you know, keen to pursue in terms of finding that connection between the past and the present and where we might be able to move to into the future, okay? And certainly at the time that we were beginning to bring our notes together into the written word, um, the whole issue of violence against women was, was massive. There were some, you know, quite high-profile um, murders, and, and it was all sort of—it just happens again in a cycle. Um, I think this whole thing with, with um, violence towards women. So, our approach to the whole project was actually quite unorthodox in the first place. You know, we—we're not ripper experts. We're not social historians. We're not, you know, political historians. Um, we're not experts on local history, and, and even though we know a lot more now than, than when we started the process, um, quite a few years ago now, I think, we don't feel that we're experts. We're still learning. Every day you will find something, an article, a YouTube video, uh, a book written, you know, members present here, you will write something and we will learn something new. But, but basically, as, as Kira said, we, we were quite interested in the whole Jack the Ripper thing, the whole body parts and the gore and the story and the legend and the whole mythology around it. My sister used to live in Whitechapel, she lived in Vans Road for a few years and she was a student at the university. And we used to come up from Kent quite regularly, we lived in Kent and I used to bring Kira was what, 12, 11, 12 years old, something like that. And we'd walk around these areas and we'd you know, tell them the stories and they loved it, the kids would really quite love it and it sort of developed from there. And then she came to me after she had been working here for some time in, in the hostels. And we went for a walk, we were walking through the Wanstead Flats, and we mentioned about the City of London Cemetery and some of the victims had been buried there. 
And she said, Mum, we ought to research together. She knows I like writing, she's a bit, bit of a journal. And um, we should write notes down, not just look into it, not just read books. Um, so we started to do that, and then the notes started to become organised into what eventually became, became the book. So it wasn't that we were writers and said, oh, we're going to write a book about this. We sort of, it's been quite an organic process. But what we did discover, and I think for me, on, on my part of it, what I particularly learned through, through the beginning of the process was that it wasn't who Jack the Ripper might or might not have been that really interested me. The victims did, and the lives of the victims did, but what really caught my interest was the story, the story itself. Um, you know, how was it told? Who told the story? Who were the characters in this particular story? Who were the protagonists, the heroes, the villains? Um, you know, every story that has endured for so many years, and for generations in particular, the Ripper story, to me, showed what I class as an infinity of mutating threads, strands that they sometimes twine together to form what looks like a, a cohesive theory, and then suddenly somebody has a new theory or finds some new fact or something, and it all snaps apart and it has to be reconstructed again. So to me, that story is like an ever-changing landscape. It's, it's got a form and structure that can be deconstructed and reconstructed again differently, and, and every writer, I think, comes to it with a different approach. So it was a, it's a fascinating story for that particular reason, and it keeps coming back. You've got your basic facts, what happened, the bodies, um, you know, the, the coroner's report, the, the police reports, what, what are available, you know, there. Um, but everything else is open to interpretation. And that's what I find particularly fascinating about this, what we eventually we decided was becoming, it has already become a myth, you know, rather than a factual true crime who done it. The Jack the Ripper story is, for me, what the stuff that legends are made of, you know, and it's, that was particularly fascinating. And, so we got going, and we got digging, and we got researching, and, and the themes started to emerge from that. So we looked at um, you know, the attitudes um, that were prevalent during Victorian times, and we, we discovered that you know, when, when I was at school, we learned, or we, I think we learned, that, that Victorian people were sort of you know, quite strong and starchy and very firm and very hardworking. But actually, underneath that veneer that we're taught about, it's a, it's a complex, bubbling broth of contradictions. Victorians were full of conflict in, inside themselves. Society was full of conflict, and, and so were Victorian people. They were not all starchy and work-obsessed and determined to reap, you know, wring wealth from, from the empire and so on. Many were, but many others pretended to be, um, and they would scurry off into the dark of the night, into the brothels or into the arms of their lovers, and, and, and they would indulge in all the fetishes and pleasures and perversions that are out there. And I'm not knocking anything, each to their own, you know, I'm not being judgmental. They, are human, they were human beings like the rest of us, okay? But they did have this sort of overtly religious society, and they were all supposed to be terribly good um, and not sinful. And of course, it was a very misogynistic society, and it was governed by these really powerful patriarchal norms. Um, so the fault of any sinning tended to be placed squarely on the shoulders of women that were not conforming to the social norms that, that, that you know. And thinking about that, it's not that different to, not, you know, to now, where single mothers are 
very frequently uh, classed in the press as, as having, you know, carrying the problems of society on their shoulders because they're single mothers. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of the sort of things that we looked at, the Victorian um, attitudes towards women. Um, you know, it, it was quickly very obvious to us that the victims were not um, only casual sex workers during some point of their lives, and I think at least one of the victims, um, Mary Kelly, was a working prostitute. Um, but all of them were probably casual sex workers. They were also, though, they were substance abusers. They endured incredible stresses um, and experienced some incredibly harsh living conditions. They scrabbled about for survival. So we figured they must have endured some kind of mental illness during the point in time in, in their lives. Um, so we, that led us to look at women's mental health problems and the Victorian attitudes um, towards, towards those particular issues. And women's mental health was something that we looked at quite closely. And obviously we're looking at a violent crime, so the issues of violence against women was something that, you know, obviously a theme that, that we had to look at. Not just because, you know, Jack the Ripper was, you know, there were very, very violent crimes, but we looked at violence towards women across the board. And, and we started to look at what violence towards women is like now and what things have changed, as, as, as Kira mentioned it. What, what I did find particularly interesting, as a side note to that, was that in, you know, violence in domestic violence situations was rife, um, and it was sort of accepted you know, that a woman might get a beating from her husband because of something you didn't like. But it was also interesting that, to find out that there was a line, a sort of invisible line drawn in the sand, and when the violence was too extreme, that the communities would, would help the women out. It was really quite quite interesting to look at that. And of course, you know, the East End was horrified by what happened to these women um, and, and the community very strongly reacted to that. There was a lot of solidarity shown, which um, I think in the early days, it was not something I, I knew about particularly. Um, so that was quite an interesting thing for us to find. As Kira said, we, we didn't go down the whodunit route. I mean, there are brilliant writers out there. There are incredible people that have done a lot of detective work and we felt you know really interesting material out there we didn't want to tread into that path we were not experts in that we had our own field of interest um, to look at and we we had to ask ourselves the question does it matter who Jack the Ripper was does it matter if we find out who he is or was rather is that going to change things for us as people who are interested in the story you know, will it all suddenly die off and be flat on you, you know, we know it was him. You know, it, it, I think in a way there is value to this enduring myth and this enduring interest in the lives of the people that lived through it and the social context, what we learn from it and what we can apply from that learning to our lives now. Um, so I'm not sure we, we wanted actually to find out who Jack the Ripper was and, and we, we certainly decided that actually it was the women that were of importance. They're, they were central to what happened. Their lives actually mattered. Not just their deaths, but their lives mattered. And, um, and we, we did find initially that a lot of the information that we were digging out was very voyeuristic, quite prurient, quite sort of, you know, the women were a gathering of body parts. And the more we delved, as, um, is it Tony? Yes, as Tony said just now, actually um, a lot of the focus out there is on the victims and their lives and their neighbours and their friends and their families um, and, and it was very heartening you know to, to discover that I think when you're a complete outsider to the area like I am and a complete outsider to the story you, you kind of 
think that that it's all about this sort of gore and blood and crime and who done it because that's what you see on the telly all the time but it isn't it's, it's far more interesting than that um so we did find that that you know there was just so much muddled thinking it was like a soup a bubbling soup of muddled thinking in victorian times um and and you know the the, the kind of repressed sexuality that these conflicting attitudes these inhumane living conditions that people lived in the devastating poverty it was in that context that we felt that whoever jack the ripper was was able to perform those gruesome acts and not be detected and thereby enter um, notoriety across the globe for a long time to come i think as well So some of the context then that we've looked at, we've looked at the outcast poor, which Mum was um, touched on, mental health, prostitution, and then some of the other famous murders um, and other myths. So just to talk a little bit about the outcast poor, um, we have to set up what society was like at the time, kind of what was happening. So there were advances in science, and we're talking about these things like Darwinism. And that for those of you who know Cesar Lombroso, who thought biologically you could tell who would be a criminal or who could tell who would be mentally ill by the size of their forehead and things like that. But there were kind of these biological advances in how we understand things like evolution. What that did when it permeated into society was sort of put people in the, give, give evidence for the class system that we have today. So anybody who wasn't a middle class or upper class white male was less evolved. That, that's how they looked at it, women included. So women were seen as less evolved, therefore more prone to mental illnesses, you know, more vulnerable and so on. And equally, we, we see that across race as well. So how they thought about and treated other races was because they thought these were people who were less evolved than them. So they've sort of taken what Darwin was doing in its kind of newest form and tried to apply it to, the, to what they had at the time. You know, rightly or wrongly, you know, it's what they had. With the underclass poor, we see this happen again. So with the underclass poor, they're seen as they, this is biologically determined. They can't ever be better than what they are. And therefore they are a risk to us in society because they're dangerous, they're like wild animals, they're not that evolved. So how they were treated and the blind eye that was often turned to them was because they were considered as less evolved. Particularly if you start thinking about the criminal elements of that and what Cesar Lombroso was doing was like, well actually if somebody's living in poverty and they're mal they, they have malnutrition, and they have like various illnesses and things like that because they're not living in kind of a clean area. They're going to develop different biological kind of characteristics which are then going to be associated with criminality. So I find it really interesting that it's sort of a circular argument going on for them. But like I said, it's what they had at the time. But this is how they used to look at it is that actually this, this interesting intersection between a very heavily religious faith-based society coming into contact and intersectionality with new science and new understanding. And what they came out of it was, well, these people, these underclass poor, these people right at the bottom, well, that's biologically determined and we can just leave them to it because hopefully they're going to die out. And that's kind of what was written, that they'll die out on their own if we don't help them. And equally, the, the intersection then with faith is that these are the sinners, they're the bad people. And prostitution and sex workers come into this because they are considered fallen women the absolute antithesis of Victorian society. They are the lowest of the low. And to have any contact with them, you would be considered to also be sinning in some way and demeaned in some way. So for me, I found that really, really interesting about really understanding that cross-section of 
new science advancements with the, and the intersection with faith and how that then made them treat other people. With mental health, this is where we see it really come through. And it's on another slide in a little bit, but you see that women were actually in asylums more than any other um, gender, any other race. And, uh, and outclass women or underclass women could be put there for a variety of reasons, which I'll go into in a little bit. But treatment of mental health was really in its infancy and it was following this biological basis. So how your upper class and middle class white male might be treated might be what we know now as an enabling environment. And it was really structured and it was about walking and taking the air and getting involved in structured activities that would support your recovery. But you see, if you were an underclass man or if you were a woman, actually it was ice baths and leachings and things like that. It was, they were treated very, very differently based on what they actually believed their kind of evolutionary status was. And it's also kind of mixed into the class status. With prostitution, which I've already said, this is very heavily directed at women being, anyone involved in prostitution being a fallen woman. And why that's really important is that what it means is that these women are thought of now as other. It's like a sort of dehumanization. This isn't just about calling them animals. This isn't calling them vermin. It's calling them other, almost as if they're something demonic. Um, and I, I imagine you, you may have, but if you've, if you've read a lot about how the Germans were made, made to feel about Jews and how um, Americans were made to feel about black men after the Civil War, it was that creation of an other. That's something slightly demonic that something that is evil and is going to hurt you if you allow it to become part of you, allow it to touch you. And it almost then gives permission for harm to be done to these, these things. That's what they become. So that's what we call dehumanization. And we see it quite a lot. And you see it throughout the Victorian context with sex working, with prostitution, particularly from those upper classes, the ones that are kind of writing the history books, is that these, these are women are other. They're not just women anymore, they're, they're sinful, they're the absolute epitome of what is sin for a Victorian woman. And then we also look at some other famous murders and urban myths, but we don't go into them too much, so I look at the comparison really between some of the more well-known murderers that we would have here in the UK, um, and just have a bit of a comparison between actually what they did, what they didn't do, any presentation of mental illness or mental ill health, that sort of thing. But I think the in most interesting part of this is that actually the people that ended up causing the most harm were actually the baby farmers at the time. So we're talking women there who were knocking up into like the hundreds of young children and babies that they killed. It wasn't actually men. But so that, that's kind of a chapter that I've gone into but it's quite interesting for me. Uh, next slide. We looked very much at the story I did, because that was my, my, my that I was particularly interested in. So while Kira was digging things around about, um, you know, mental health and institutions and the sorts of treatments they gave, particularly mentally ill women, or women that were purported to be mentally ill, because many of them ended up in institutions and weren't, um, I was looking at the way that stories work and the way that uh, urban legends develop. So. So starting from the starting point of the fact that stories are essential to human beings. I mean, here's us telling you the story of how our book came to be. That's how we communicate with each other. We tell each other little anecdotes and stories of our lives, and that's how we communicate things, how we understand the past, how we understand society, how we understand each other. It's a central part of human nature, storytelling. And 
I looked at you know the Jack the Ripper story particularly as a story, not not as fact or a crime or anything, but as a story. And what it does, it provides us with an archetypal villain, something that as human beings we can hang our hats on and say that's a bad guy doing a bad thing, and that's what we understand about the events around it, and how we understand what's evil and what is good is, is through these stories. Um, but there were many others before him. You know, we had stories about Sweeney Todd, we had the London Monster, Spring Hill Jack. So I go into, I touch into these things a little bit, um, and we talk a little bit about archetypes and stereotypes and about how urban legends grow um, around these characters, these personalities, whether they're real or not. And the function of urban legends um, is to, uh, to teach, to reprimand, but an awful lot of the function is also control. And we had a, a bit of a think about how there is a lot of social control when there are stories that are enhanced, embellished, whatever you want to say, particularly in the press, particularly in the media, and they exert control. Um, so in this particular case, it's if you're a woman, you are at risk simply by going out on your own. So do not go out on your own. Do not have any freedom. You know, that's, that's basically the message that any uh, story associated with murders, in particular murders against women, um, comes across. So I looked a little bit about how urban legends are a useful way of controlling society. Um, and this is one of my favorite chapters that I wrote was the role of the press. And yeah, you know, it was through this that I, I really discovered um, how, because of technology, because of literacy, um, all booming towards that end of that of, of the 19th century, it really helped to ferment the creation of what we now know as the tabloid press. And what was particularly interesting at the time was when I was writing this, it was, um, you know, that sort of 2016, it was the whole, the whole Brexit thing was going on, the whole Donald Trump was going on, fake news was all over the news, and all of a sudden, you know, the world was turning around sort of wondering, oh, how do we trust the information that we're fed? How do we know to trust anything? We used to, or when I was growing up, we used to trust the Times and the BBC and the Telegraph because there was journalistic integrity, but all of a sudden that was being shattered. So it was quite interesting to go back 100 plus years and see that actually the media didn't trust itself then. And we had um, the likes of W.T. Stead, who, who's a really quite interesting character, the, the different um, you know, presses, and, and um, was it the Leveson Inquiry that had a look into you know, uh, problems with the way that uh, unethical reporting. So I remember listening to reports about that at the same time as I was looking at this. Um, so I had a good look at the way that the story of Jack the Ripper and the story of these women, how that developed in the press and how the facts were embellished, shall we say, distorted, I think, in, in some cases, how we had to, to try and look for the truth behind the bias of editors that just wanted to sell papers and sell more than the paper next door and, and so on. Um, and what was particularly interesting about that was actually all these years down the line, and although everything's different because technology is totally different, essentially nothing's changed that much. You know, it was there's still unethical reporting going on and, and, and ways of trying to discover the truth, whatever the truth is, in order to sell papers or in order, uh, you know, social media as well, in order to get more clicks or likes or whatever it is. So the, the late Victorian period was absolutely fascinating in terms of history of the press and in terms of, um, you know, 
the way that the Jack the Ripper story and other other murder stories were, were portrayed, um, but and and what I I looked at in particular was also how the media was brilliant in terms of bringing to the eyes of the masses all this information because you know 50 years earlier a lot of people wouldn't have known and yet the Jack the Ripper story became a global sensation. It was what we now call a viral story, um, but it was also responsible for fueling fears and false accusations. Um, and like Kira says, the Victorians like to think of, of um, anybody, any troublemakers, they like to point them out as aliens somehow, you know, not one of us, different, monstrous in some way. And fingers were pointed at immigrant communities, whether from Eastern Europe, uh, Jewish communities that had escaped the pogroms in Europe, uh, the Irish that were trying to escape crushing poverty in Ireland and came to London, you know, the, the richest city of the world, to try and get by. And it's we have echoes of the same sort of sensationalist um, portrayal of people that, that come into our country from abroad. So, you know, that, that's quite interesting to see how the media role was in developing this story, this myth of Jack the Ripper, and how in, in the, the reporting of him, um, he became a monster, hence the title, okay? And what we tried to do, I think, in the book and in the way that we wrote it was to portray him you know, the title's not out there anymore, but it's called Myth, Monster, Murderer. So we went from the myth, um, looked at him as a monster, and actually just brought him down to earth. He's just a murderer. He's somebody that killed women, you know. Do we need all that mythology hung on him? So that's something that we explored in the process of the story. Um, you know, and, and sometimes in, in the story, the murdered women seemed to be totally incidental, like a collection of body parts. And we're very, very grateful that there are writers out there and researchers that bring the women out into the fore. And it's, it's brilliant that the lady over there, was, I can't remember your name, I'm so sorry. But just, you know, Emma Smith and Martha Tubbrook, they're not the canonical five, so a lot of people don't know about them. But they were victims of very serious crime at the time. And, and I'm so glad that <coughs> something's been done to commemorate that, you know. So, so that we looked at, at the role of the press and, um, and how important that was. In, in the whole story. So women's mental health, this is um, an area I took a lot of interest in. Um, and I was working as um, in psychiatric liaison at the time. So in the 1850s, women make up the largest portion of the asylum population. And a lot of these women are, we won't, so they're not just from your kind of lower classes and underclasses, there are upper class women there too. But they can be in there for a variety of different reasons. And most of those are about contravening social norms. So when we think about um, mental illness, even in society today, what we're, what the things that we're looking at are, you know, is that person causing harm to others? Is that person causing harm to themselves? Is that person functioning on a daily basis? Are they able to get up and do the things that they need to do? And are they contravening social norms? And I think this is where things get a bit tricky, where we have such a diverse culture in society that, you know, one culture who is setting the rules might be putting rules onto another culture where actually it might be quite normal within their culture to behave or act in, the, in a certain way. So what you find with women is that they could be brought into the asylums for a variety of reasons. It could be because of their sexuality. It could be because they just don't want to get married. It could be because they don't want to do whatever it is their father or brother is asking them to do. And you find women placed in these situations not because they are mentally ill, but because they are con contravening social convention as well as you know, lots of people there because of mental illness too.
1870s, asylums are overcrowded and underfunded as mental illness is seen as, as genetic, innate and inevitable. And this is what I was talking about earlier. So this is Darwinism really coming through. This is about, you know, people who are ill, they were always going to be ill. We can't make them any better, so we're just going to kind of contain them and we're not really going to think about treating them. Funnily enough, prior to this, so prior to the 1850s, there were actually treatments. I mean, they tended to, to, to come more from kind of religious or charitable sectors, but people were treated with kindness and compassion and there was a consideration about how you support people out of mental illness, but this really changed with the kind of the biological drivers and the biological understanding um, of mental illness, which of course is important, it, it is there, but to make this a point as that you know, somebody can never change, you know, that deterministic value to it, 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 I guess to us would seem quite difficult, because what it also doesn't do is it doesn't account for any of the social stresses stress of the people experience. So if you're living in really abject poverty, um, you're going to be under stress. So, I mean, I might be ranting on a little bit here, but you know, we've got the diastasis, stress diastasis model, which is about how stresses in society uh, perpetuate mental illnesses. And we can see it here. So things like mental illness, things like trauma, things like poverty, things like you're not being in work, things like postnatal mental health problems, um, none of these are accounted for. I've also put up there, of course, things like bereavement, attachment difficulties, because people will have experienced those. They will have had, you know, parents who were absent. They will have had children who died, and they all affect somebody's mental health. But none of that would have been really considered in thinking or formulating about why a person has become mentally ill. It was more like, you know, where are they in the class system, and what's happening with them biologically, and that might determine then how they're back to attitudes to prostitution. Um, because a lot of the women, not just the victims, but women who ended up in, in sex working nowadays, as well as in the past, um, were in that position because of some kind of trauma, because of stress, because of poverty, because that was the only way, turning tricks were the only way that they're going to be able to make a few coins and pay for a bed or pay for some food. And so we had to look at the attitudes um, of Victoria Latias towards prostitution, to look at the way that, you know, the victims might have been perceived at the time, or to even look at the way that the perpetrator of the crime might have regarded the victims. Um, and like Kira says, you know, there were foreign women, they were considered other in, in some way. So we looked at those attitudes, and you know, I think the word disgust probably sums up what the average person in the late Victorian period actually felt towards the sex workers, or, or what they were expected to feel. I mean, they were pretty conflicted in their attitudes towards sex and women in general, but in general, prostitution was considered as sinful and disgusting, and therefore, prostitutes were considered as amoral, as, as if there was something intrinsically wrong with them from birth. Um, and they were rejected as unholy and ungodly creatures. They were dehumanized. Um, and, you know, if, if they're considered as not human, it's so awfully it's easy to perhaps treat them in a way that is inhuman. Um, they, there was a feeling in general, you know, that sex workers, or, or actually even a woman who enjoyed sex, you know, you weren't supposed to enjoy sex if you were a woman, you simply had sex with your husband and procreated, and that was that. Um, and it was the actual the complete opposite of this paragon of virtue that the Victorian, the ideal Victorian woman was supposed to be, you know, whiter than white, um, lay back and, and thought of England, had the baby, and that was that, you know? Um, meanwhile, their husbands could go out and be men and, and do what men do um, and find prostitutes, but those prostitutes weren't clean or, or, or women or even, you know, or human. 
Um, so it really was, an, you know, a very, very conflicted view of, of sex and, and prostitution that, that um, the Victorians had. And I think what struck me particularly was that the victims of the, of the Whitechapel murders were also, in, at, at some point in time, considered villains themselves. They were sex workers, they were poor, um, there were women who perhaps had, had fallen away from their families for whatever reason, had fallen away from society for whatever reason. So they were victims, but they were also villains in the very confused Victorian mind. Um, and it was a society that had at its core deep, deeply rooted misogyny. Um, so that sense of conflict was always going to be turned, you know, against the women and against the victim. And in fact, you know, we have seen that degree of misogyny repeated over and over again in crimes against women. And if, if you think about the, the more recent 1975, the Yorkshire Ripper, and those particular murders, it, it was, uh, you know, it was said that it was only um, when they started, when he started killing innocent girls that the police started sitting up and taking notice, because prior to that, well, they were just prostitutes, weren't they? And, if it, you know, we're talking 1975, which, you know, I was growing up then, so it was clearly not that long ago. And, um, you know, but 100 years on, it's, it's quite scary that the attitudes haven't really changed that much at all. Um, it was a very judgmental society as well. Um, you know, judge, we all make judgments really easily. I think it's part of human nature. Um, but I think these days we have a, a better education perhaps and we think about things more, more fully before we, create, we make those judgments. But in Victorian society, there was, you know, there was God and, and there was religion and judgments were made about people by the way they lived or, as Kira says, what class they were born into, what race they were born into. So it was a very judgmental society. Um, and, and a woman who did not perform the role of the perfect wife or the perfect mother or the, you know, the, the, the virtuous spinster who was protected by a male member of the family could very easily be rejected and end up destitute. They could be rejected by family, by society, and, and they, they could be classed as prostitutes even before they started turning tricks. But eventually turning tricks is the only way they would be able to survive um, and to keep her alive and off the dangerous streets at night. Um, they, they were very, very vulnerable because street homeless people, street homeless people are vulnerable anyway. Street homeless women are much more vulnerable than the most vulnerable group. Um, so, you know, they very easily became a victim for a murderer, pretty much as they are today, actually. So, you know, I'm not sure things have changed that, that terribly much. I mean, I have painted a pretty dark picture of Victorian attitudes to prostitution. There were, I wouldn't call it a counterbalance, but there were people that tried to reach out and tried to help a fallen woman, shall we say. Um, maybe from the idea that they were going to bring them back into the fold of Christianity. Um, maybe because they, they felt that they had to help them out because it was the right thing to do. Um, but, but there was some support out there. It just wasn't great. It wasn't a lot. And, and society was, its um, punitive attitudes towards um, prostitution was far stronger than the help that, that these people were getting. Um, and I think Kira can probably stand up for the fact that it's still quite a punitive attitude out there anyway. Um, but the community, you know, there were sections of the community that expressed solidarity. Um, and, and they, you know, they were, they abhorred the murders. Um, you know, the victims of Jack the Ripper had friends, they had 
family, they have children, they have brothers and sisters, and and some of them still have family alive, you know, sort of descendants that are alive today. And the community did try to club together, and there was uproar about the lack of police um, support and the lack of detecting of, of um, the victim. I think there were vigilante groups set up to try and protect women. Um, just didn't get very far, I suppose, because at the end of the day, you need the support of government and politics and, and so on to create a safe environment for people. Um, and eventually, you know, this attitude toward prostitution is behind this social control of women. Um, and the, the, between the murders and the attitudes towards prostitution, there were calls, as, as happens regularly since with these murders uh, of women, uh, for women to stay safe by not going out alone, by not going out with the protection of men, calls for women and abate by women, because naturally women become fearful of what might happen to them, especially with sensationalist press reports going on around them. Um, and so women's freedom and women's freedom of movement have been curtailed over and over and over again, generation after generation. And I think we're still all familiar with that call today for women, don't go out and do I still say to my daughters, Right, and she's still saying, "What are you doing? Is Chris coming to pick you up?" So you know, it's it's something that we is endemic um, to us. So actually, I was thinking, um, I was thinking as Mum was talking just there, like there were there are there were some interesting things that were happening which we've looked at in the book. So some of that um, that need that want to support women who are in this position actually drove a lot of the housing reforms that happened at the time. I mean, we do see changes in legislation depending on how or what's going on. I think there was legislation at the time where um, women could be tested, or particularly sex workers could be tested for various um, sexually transmitted diseases. But what actually ended up happening was they started testing just about every woman they thought might be a sex worker, and that included women who definitely weren't, but they were forcibly tested anyway, just in case they passed things on. So it was things, things like that were going on. It was really like taken to the nth degree. So looking at violence towards prostitutes or violence towards sex workers, I mean, I've kind of, I've, I've kind of thrown this out there. This is such a big area, and I've only put a few bullet points. But I think what we really need to see is kind of the politics and the context of the time. So to give some context of how kind of politics and, the, and legislation can change these things, if you think back to 1991, in 1991, marital rape became illegal. So in Victorian times, it was illegal to rape, but marital rape was not illegal. So that's the sort of thing that we're looking at here, is that women are seen as the property of men, particularly within that marriage context. If you think about some of those victims that we're talking about, many of them were married and experienced lots of difficulties within their marriage. They became, if they did sex work, it was to kind, of, it was to supplement what they needed. They weren't kind of, all, they weren't all sex working all the time, but they were experiencing, they would have experienced some of these difficulties. Now, if you're a sex worker, you're the property of everybody and nobody. You know, you're not somebody's woman. You're not protected by anybody. Anyone in society can buy what you have to offer at any time if that's what you want to do. And I think that often becomes very confusing. So legislatively. If, if the woman is supposed to be owned by their partner, what happens then? Who owns these fallen women? Where, where are they a part of? Women are seen, I mentioned this earlier, women are seen as kind of less evolved. We're, so we're seen as more, or we were seen as more emotional. Um, that the understanding of women's mental health at the time was that we we're very driven by the different points of our sexuality. So whether that is starting to menstruate, pregnancy, 
or menopause, it was thought that women's mental health moved around those three areas. So a lot of the treatments for women actually came from trying to control what was happening there, really desexualizing women if they could as part of the treatments in asylums. So we've already said prostitutes are seen as fallen women and less than human, and I think this is, for me, the really important thread, and it comes into a lot of work that I do on a daily basis anyway, but when you really dehumanise people is when you really see that violence can be perpetuated, particularly in the extremes that we see it in this story. So prostitutes, they are, they are seen as other, they are seen as alien, they're seen as not women, as un-women, and I think it just makes violence more permissible in those, um, those extremes. And thinking about the different ways that violence sort of comes around between kind of men and women in these situations, you have to take that social context. So what was permitted then is not permitted now. Equally, we have to think about the individual who put, who, um, who actually creates the harm, who does the violence. So what's going on for them? So in the book, I talk a lot about schemas. I talk a lot about you know how people kind of develop pro-violent attitudes, how they might develop like attitudes towards women that might permit violence. Um, within that then comes that interaction, that trigger point between the man and the woman. What's going on in that interaction, the actual, the actual trigger point for the violence, and it could be, and this is, you know, we're not victim blaming here because it's all on the person who creates the violence at the end of the day, but you know, if they feel they need to assert their power and their dominance, their dominance if they feel shame for what it is that they're doing because they're about to have sex with something that is kind of what they think is less than human, you know, they could all be trigger points for violence. Like if they feel that they have been shortchanged in some way, that that woman is disrespecting them in some way, that's when we might see that tr those trigger points to violence. So in the book, I go into quite a lot of detail as to the different kind of psychological theories, but also bringing some feminist theories and sociological theories into that as well. Oh yeah, this is me. And dispelling some of those myths. So I also do a little bit of that as well in the book. So we've already said it, but to be really clear, not all the victims of the murders were sex workers. So when you look at the data, when you look at some of the um, some of the research that was coming out at the time, there were there, there was thought there would be tens of thousands of women who were sex working to supplement their income, and these would have been women who were working in houses, who might have been working in shops. They needed a way to supplement their income. A lot of them were sex work. So some of them were sex working some of the time. They weren't all sex workers, but I think to say that none of them were sex workers wouldn't be correct either. Um, certainly not what, from what we saw from our research. That the killer was mentally ill, so I think that what we have a lot of is, is part of that narrative that this, you know, that he must have been mad to do what he did. So I look into this a little bit more because actually people with psychosis and schizophrenia find it very hard to get away with something like this, um, particularly in today's society. But I imagine they'd have found it difficult back then because the the level of functioning they have is quite poor. So to say that somebody was mentally ill, I'm, I'm not sure really fits, that is quite a myth. You have got other things which I look into in the book, which is around personality disorder and psychopathy. And there is probably some elements in there where, yeah, okay, we could probably say that someone who did this may have personality difficulties of some type. You have to remember psychopathy is a personality disorder in and of itself, where it kind of mixes a lot of the other ones. Um, so I have a look and kind of look at that, that I'm calling it a myth, but we, we can't really say whether the person would have been or wouldn't have been. And then the other myth is that we can actually profile this type of person. So in the field of work that I'm in, in forensic psychology, it's very, very difficult to profile people anyway. I mean, the best that you can do is kind of support the narrowing down of the, of the pool, but that's what the police do anyway, right? 
So to try and profile who the person would have been, I think the best you can get to is probably that the person was local, that they would have been known to the women, and so on and so forth, and not anything different to what the police would have done. So the idea that we can kind of backwards profile, I, to me, is a bit of a myth. I don't think we can. I just don't think we've got the information about it. Um, yeah. So as we moved into concluding the book, we looked at, you know, what's changed? And we came up with, with this quote by Irene Peters, just because everything is different doesn't mean anything has changed. I mean, look, we, we live in a quantum universe compared to Victorian times. You know, we've got AI, we've got robotics, we, uh, you know, we can save people's eyesight in a 10 minute um, operation, but we can also kill thousands at the press of a button. You know, we've, our technology has, has been amazing. and, and we don't have workhouses anymore, and, and things are very, very different to what they were in Victorian times. But human beings don't change that much, that quickly, and we are still, these days, talking about the same issues, the same problems. We have increasing levels of poverty, we've got a housing crisis, we've got a healthcare crisis, our policing system is in crisis, our care system is in crisis. Um, I could go on and on and on, you know, but I'm not, I'm not running for politics or anything like that. Um, we do have very similar problems and they're getting worse and we are seeing in parts of the country um, the level of poverty and I mean we're seeing worse homelessness now than when I was working as a homeless persons officer in the late 1980s, early 1990s. We're seeing worse conditions, we're seeing more people um, you know, with problems with uh, drug addiction, substance abuse, all sorts of things. So, so you know how much has changed? I sometimes have to sit and think about um, the way our attitudes are towards um, refugees, towards immigrants, towards people that are other, that are different in whatever way, and gender differences in the way that we think about them and the way that these are portrayed. And like I've already said, the media is still sensationalist, it's still all about money and how much money changes hands and how many papers you can sell and how many people tune into what, whatever particular program. And the most important thing that I think hasn't changed um, is that women continue to be victims of violence on the street. Um, it's very rare to have uh, murders quite as gory and quite as brutal as the Jack the Ripper murders, but they're there and, you know, the Yorkshire Ripper was pretty brutal himself. Um, and any death, any, any murder is a, an act of brutality anyway. Um, you know, women are still victims of sex trafficking, abuse, slavery. There are more rough women sleepers, I think. I think you might have looked at some stats on this, yeah. Um, now, than, than when I was working back in, 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 in the field in the 90s. And women are still abused in uh, domestic violence situations more often than men, even though, you know, men are also abused and I don't you know, want to take away from that. Um, so I think we, we did eventually come to the conclusion that, as Ian Peter says, just because everything is different doesn't mean to say anything has changed. Some, some contexts are still there. What lessons has our society learned? Because if anything um, should come from the lives, the very tragic deaths of, of these women, the loss for their friends and their families, um, is in fact that society should have learned something. That when we look back at the lives of these uh, women and, and their, their horrible deaths, if we've learned something, if we can change something for the women in the East End of London, if we can make uh, the East End safer, if we can make London safer, if we can make the world safer for women, 
It sounds really idealistic, but if we didn't have idealism, nothing would ever change. And we have to, I think, you know, cling on to that and hold on to that and say, look, what if, what if, uh, you know, the police service was, was properly funded? If, if there was more financial investment in the prison and the reform uh, work of the prison and the rehabilitation work of prisons, if the healthcare system was better funded, if women's mental health and mental health services for everybody actually, maybe we would not be looking at, at somebody becoming a serial killer, but somebody who's violent could be stopped from becoming a serial killer. So we came away from writing the book with a whole series of what if things were different, what if we could change the context, then perhaps something like this might not ever have to happen again. Um, and if, if that, you know, if that's the only thing that comes out of having written the book, then I feel that personally I learned a very valuable lesson and I hope that people that read the book, you know, come away thinking some of these things as well and pondering on, on some of that and maybe being able to influence some kind of change in their particular circle. Because if, you know, if a hundred people makes a change, make a change to one person's life, that's a hundred people that are better off for it, you know? So, um, so that, you know, we came away thinking what might be done differently, what, what might um, work better in future. Um, and that's the story of our book. Is it not? Did you want to add anything? Yeah. Well, she does. I do. Um, and only because, I think if we go to the next slide anyway, I've got some statistics, but I'm actually going to contradict oh. now. No, hang on, because I've lost it. That's fine. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm, I'm going to contradict oh, Mum a little bit, because actually some of what I look at uh, in chapters in the book around violence towards women also covers violence towards men, and there's a lot of irony in, in it. So. I've got some up-to-date statistics here, which I'll read to you, but actually, in terms, on average, in the UK, we have about five to 600 murders per year. Of those, the majority are men, not women. Okay, so men are more at threat from violence, from murder, than women are. The difference is in how it happens. So women are more likely to be killed in the home by somebody they know in a domestic incident. Men are the ones who are more likely to be killed out in public by somebody that they don't know which I guess is what makes the Jack the Ripper murder so unique, is that actually it's very, very rare for something like that to happen, which is what I said earlier as well, that it was probably known to them, because why would you wander off with a man that you don't really know? It's quite rare for that to happen. So it is men who are more vulnerable to violence out in society than it is women, but the messaging that we get is that women are the ones that are vulnerable. And that comes back to what Mum was saying about, you know, how the media um, kind of helps perpetuate that story of our vulnerability, but actually it's your sons who could get into a fight outside a nightclub or a pub and be killed. Less likely your daughters. So that is, I do look at some of those statistics. I think we've done a lot of, a lot of white male bashing today. I'm really sorry. That, that's not really the intention, but it, we can't get away from what that kind of patriarchy in Victorian society looked like. That was the setup, that was the frame. But actually the statistics show that it is your men that are vulnerable, not just your women. So I've got here just some statistics I'm going to read you. So this is the most recent stuff. So thinking about whether things have changed or not. So the Single Homeless Project, their Making Women Count census report in 2023, states that there are at least 154 women sleeping rough in London in a week. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but it really, really is. Like that's a lot of women rough sleeping. At the last count from the Crisis Homeless Monitor in 2023, so that was data from 22, uh, the number of people rough sleeping had grown from uh, to up to 3,069. So that was of November of last year. Um, in terms of the ONS hidden homelessness, what they have found is it's women, children um, and migrants 
and that hidden homelessness I think is an idea that's really interesting because we do see it in relation to the victims and what made them vulnerable as these weren't women that were sleeping on the street all the time every day. Hidden homelessness is about sometimes having a place to put your head down, it's about sofa surfing, it's about hostels and things like that. So actually just because they might have a roof over their head some days of the week does not stop them from being vulnerable. Okay, they, they, that's still a homelessness report. Um, I'll come back to this, so that's some of the violence ones. Uh, Streets Like UK says that at least 10,500 individuals are sex working at any given time in our society over the last few years, the majority of whom are women. Uh, from the UK Parliament website, this is from 2016, so it's not even the most up-to-date, but 72,800, with 88% of those being women, were sex working. 32,000, they thought, were working in London. And the English Collective of Prostitutes had some really interesting data. So this is back in 2004, and some of it's from 2013. Um, but actually, that 74% of off-street off sex workers cited the need to pay household expenses and support their children. Uh, anecdotally, we see the cost of living crisis coming into that, but more than 70% of UK sex workers had previously worked in healthcare, education or the voluntary sector. So it's still the case that women are having to supplement their wages by sex working rather than being kind of the prostitutes that we are fed or led to believe um, by the media or by society. Um, and actually, the, the last bit is more about actually how the police are treating it. So they are criminalising sex workers, they're just doing it differently. So actually these women would be getting um, kind of civil orders rather than convictions. So actually, despite being vulnerable, these women are then become criminals as well and the vulnerability that comes with that now. So I am going to step off my high horse and my pedestal and we're going to move on, we're going to finish up. So I think we move to the last bit, it's just about what would we like to see happen again? Um, do you want to take this, Mum, or do you want me to just, you could just rush through it? Yeah. So we've talked about yeah potential improvements in policing. I think that's a lot of that's about funding, and really it's about being pre preventative rather than reactive. So how do we support societies? How do we support children? How do we support mental health? How do we support poverty? Um, those are the things that will kind of prevent women and men being kind of vulnerable in the same way. Developing more open, tolerant social attitudes. Um, yeah, through education and community work, improving social support, mental health services, eradicating poverty. That's definitely your word, that's not my word. That's you writing yeah, eradicating poverty. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely, we want to lift people out of poverty because it is something that makes people vulnerable. Um, and universal access to housing and, and housing support. So, I mean, that, that's, that's for us, those are our ideals, that's things that we like. We totally appreciate that that's, that is what it is, you know. We, we can't do anything more with it than that. And I think without further ado, then, it's just about further questions. And whether anyone has any. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Apologise, should have said at the beginning. What we usually do, so we go and refresh their glasses, and then we'll come back and we'll take questions. Okay. But there's one thing that occurred to me as you were going through your talk. We were um, addressed by somebody from the Whitechapel Mission. I can't. Do you remember? It was a terrific talk. He spoke about the women that were living in Whitechapel right now, and he was supporting one woman in particular. And it was just the thing that struck, and I know it struck you as well, Steve. The price that she was charging for her services could equate directly to what they were charging in a yeah, for for Bentois. So what's changed? Yeah. Do you know? Thank you. So what we'll do is we'll after that great talk, we're gonna ask are there any uh, any questions or comments that people have to make. If you do have a question, if you can wait for me.
Thanks for a great talk, ladies. I'd like to say that first. Do you think that the Me Too movement, which is coming along in the last few years, is speeding up the process where people are beginning to realise that we have to reassess the way we look at these, these things? Do you think it helps? Look, the Me Too movement is one, I think, it's something that's emerged from a change in social attitudes. It's not something that... It, it, it kind of goes in a circle, doesn't it? You know, it, something emerges and then it accelerates change, or it accelerates change in social attitudes, and, and the, the hashtag Me Too is one of those things. Um, I think, in and of itself, it wouldn't necessarily um, have changed the way that you know we are looking perhaps more at victims and at, at uh, the women that were involved and and not just glorifying the perpetrator you know which is perhaps you know in the early writings last century was was more um key so my view and this is just a personal opinion i don't think in and of itself it's made a, a huge difference i think it itself the me too movement is um has sprung out of changes in in attitudes which has come from a change in education, a change in research, more writing by women, more research by women, having more women involved in uh, organisations like yourselves, like you know, more women writers, um, and I think that has redressed some of the balance a little bit. Um, I don't really want to add anything, but that's that's just my my view on the on the whole issue there. Yes, Sue. Just wondered if you'd read uh, Hallie Ribbonhold's The Five. There we go. Um, I'll share it between us in a moment. So yes, we did, but actually we were in the editing process. Um, by the time that book came out, we read it, but we did read it and we do refer to it. Um, is there a part B to your question? Like, is there another part to that? So you just want to know whether we'd read it? <laughs> yes. And what did you think of it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was a part B. Yeah. Um, we were having this conversation earlier so there were parts of it that I really enjoyed I really liked the focus on the women and um, there are some parts that I don't necessarily agree with because I think there are leaps made um, I think the example I gave was about somebody having found one of the victims having found shelter in a doorway and being killed while she was asleep and going mm, I'm not sure how you got there um, and the idea that none of them were sex working whereas actually what the research suggests that lots of women were and they probably were some of the time so and there's things that I don't necessarily agree with the whole thing, but it was really helpful to have a book that really focused on the lives of the women and give them that picture. Yeah, um, I mean, I pretty much concur with what Kira says. I think some of the conclusions um, on that book were, yeah, leaps of faith rather than leaps of research. Um, and um, But what it did do for me is it's easy reading, and I think it introduced a lot of people, particularly women, to the subject matter, it's an entry into it. Whatever else, whatever um, else has happened, I, I'm glad that more people are interested and more women are interested in the subject. Uh, having said that, I, I don't think it's a textbook, I think it's an opinion book, but that's my opinion, okay? I mean, just to say, I mean, I don't think there's anything attached to that question, but just interested to see what your view was on it. I know um, Bill, um, who's written two books on Jack the Ripper, thinks that it's a, he's also enjoyed the book. Bill, might yeah, 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 with great humanity, superb. Okay, uh, I do, I do wonder from a male point of view that um, in formative years you come across other teenagers who um, 
brag about whatever and um, and as you get older you hear views of men um, and then maybe um, you know as you become a father and you get a daughter um, and you're worried about those sort of men that are around and what do you do you start controlling your daughter and um, so, so my daughter turned or it's just about just turning 50 but she was here yesterday and she was going home late on, on a tube and I said no I don't think you should go home on a tube by yourself uh, here's some money to get an Addison Lee car you know but that's control and the whole thing goes around in circles you know and I, I, I do think you, you said about education um, I think um, the education has also got to be um, not for women but for men um, right from an early age from parental and schooling that's just my opinion so. I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Um, I mean, I've got two two very young boys. I'm sure Mum can speak for the fact that I work in prisons and how that makes her feel. Um, as parents, you're always going to want to not necessarily control, but care for and protect. The the difference I think is is um, the education side of things is the narrative around uh, the vulnerability of women and what we should and shouldn't be doing in society. And I think that's changing a lot now, at least has. And then actually, that it's our young men who are really vulnerable. It's our young men that are in prisons. It's our young men that die more than others. And actually, why aren't we exerting the same level of control? Maybe the, the idea is that it's not about control, but how do we show that care and compassion equally? How do we change the narrative and let boys know that you've got to control yourself out there? Because if you get into a fight, that could be you. You know, women are less likely to get into fights, but actually we just need to balance that off a little bit so that we can care and protect them rather than control them. Does that make sense? Do you want to come in on that? Because I know I terrify you with the things that I do, so. Yeah, I, I, I cannot agree more with, with the gentleman here. I mean, Kira does work in, in prisons. She works with some very dangerous um, male prisoners. Uh, she's a slight woman and she's my baby and you know I want to protect her all the time um, and I feel the same about my boys I have four daughters and two sons um, and that wanting to protect is always always there um, but you're absolutely right where we have society has generation after generation after generation allowed males to speak and think in a particular way and brag about whatever and mentally that dehumanises the woman that they were with at that particular time. We do need to change that narrative through schooling, through the way that in families we talk about each other, um, and not accepting that kind of language, and, and society as a whole, in all our media, all our institutions, beginning to change that emphasis. And it might take a couple of generations, but I'm hopeful that it, it will happen, and that you know, there's always going to be people in society that are going to be vulnerable, but perhaps we can help them limit that vulnerability and recognise that, yeah, males are the, the subject of, of random acts of violence. Uh, you know, women just tend to, to be at the hammering it. I just want to say thanks very much to um, um, all the people we've spoken to today. Uh, but I do have a question. Um, in the research that you did on your book, is there anything that you discovered shock you or make you rethink any predisposition you may have had? Did anything come as a learning curve to yourselves? 
So I think for me the shock was learning about some of the treatment of women in terms of mental health and I don't want to put, I know everyone's just eating their lunch but you know it was um, reading about leeches on the inside of cervixes and things like that was really quite, I know as a, as a treatment for, for women. Um, so I think that really shocked me and I think putting the two and two together around the impact of Darwinism and of course, we you know evolution is so important. We know about it today. We use it today. We have a in the work that I do. We always take a biopsychosocial approach. But actually, really seeing the impact not just on what then became colonialism, but actually mental health treatment for many many years. Um, that for me was quite a huge learning curve. I think I think that the, the Jack the Ripper story, the Whitechapel murders, is is full of shock factors. And just when you think you know everything there is to know. You read, or you reread something that, that reminds you of, of something shocking. I mean, just the, the murders themselves. Um, we were talking just now about the way that M. Smith um, died, and that, to me, that was just so horrific. Okay, and I'm not gonna go into detail, so we've all had a lovely lunch, so we'll end up with indigestion. Um, but, yeah, I mean, every now and again, the attitudes, even though, you know, you, brought, you, you read your history books, but going back again through the attitudes to, towards women in particular and how controlled women's lives were. I always end up learning something new. I mean, don't forget women used to go around in long skirts and corsets and they, they, they were constrained physically by the clothes they wore, physically because they weren't allowed to go into all sorts of places, mentally, I mean, women's lives were stifled from the minute they were born and I think I am always freshly shocked by finding different aspects of that. Um, it never ceases to to dismay me um, as to what my my you know great aunts and great 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 aunts had to live through, um, and it makes me admire you know the women that I spend time with all the more because they step outside you know whatever comfort zone we create for them you know so that's that's kind of what I. Learned. There was one one question I wanted to ask, and um, you were talking earlier on about attitudes towards women in Victorian times. They're meant to be pure and loyal and whereas the male could explain a bit more. Um, I'm just seeing um, a parallel between the Florence Maybridge trial um, that took place around that time as well, because she was pretty much convicted because she had an affair, whereas um, her husband had multiple affairs and that wasn't a factor. Did you, have you, are you aware of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I might let Mum take this one, actually, but... Yeah, uh, no, 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 yeah. So, yes, we did, we did look at it as part of the reading, and it is interesting because, actually, it becomes... Not a character assassination, but it's the poor character of the woman because she starts sleeping around. Well, she must have done it, she must have poisoned him, and, and so on. Whereas it was more, accept, it, wasn't, it wasn't accepted, you know, but if men did go off and have affairs or sleep with them, with prostitutes, it was more, you know, but it's, it's their biology, they need it, but women weren't, weren't supposed to. Do you see what I mean? So, yeah, you can sort of see how they kind of character assassinated her by doing that. Yeah, it's just a comment really I think it's quite interesting if you look at what Parliament said what prostitution was in Victorian times they called it in official acts the great social evil yeah. and all of the onus was put on the women the women were completely blamed prostitutes were seen as nymphomaniacs in society at that time and all the blame was put on the ladies and I think well if there isn't a demand there wouldn't be a service in the first place as well yeah, yeah they wouldn't have had to do that, they wouldn't have had to suck them at their incomes. There was, a, there was a clever business model going on over there. It was sort of great social evil according to everybody. Sorry. No, it's okay.
Okay, well, if there's no further questions, can we have another big round of applause for Kyra Wilde and Jackie Anderson? Thank you so much. Well done.